Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Sounding Board. Today we're going to delve into the sparkly world of 1980s pop, with our talking heads under strict instructions to stick to the music and not Lady Di in the Falklands War, although they might get a mention. Mm. Our returning conquering hero and heroine are David Cox. Hello to David. Hello. And Amy Laurent. Hello. Both of whom you'll be familiar with from previous shows. And as per usual, folks, I want to know, first of all, whether there's any news that has caught your eye in the last couple of weeks. Amy, do you want to go first? Because you've got an absolute corker. Okay, well, look, this is a couple of weeks old now, which in internet time is like five years, but I still think it's worth bringing up because I think it's hilarious. Taylor Swift is rumoured to be getting carried in and out of her apartment in boxes of suitcases. Obviously, she is weathering a PR storm at the moment. She's trying to lie low. We haven't really seen very much of her. She's not on Instagram at all. Usually, she's all over Instagram, her and her squad. And the paps are waiting for her, and they're not seeing her, but they are seeing boxes and suitcases getting carried out of her apartment. And um, so some of the... Okay, so I think one of the, the news sources, I think maybe it was Spin retracted it but obviously then it was out there and rumours have been abounding ever since like oh okay so I think Slate took the dimensions of the suitcase and then got somebody who was at the staff at Slate who was the same height and size as Taylor Swift to try and fit into a case of the same size oh the suitcase has wheels but it wasn't being wheeled out it was being carried out what does this mean anyway I think it's really funny <laughs> and if you're wondering what some of the silences were there as Amy were talking were all about, I think it was just we were so flabbergasted, really, David and I. I think this is important. I know that, that is. North Korea's got the bomb, but she could be carried in and out of her apartment in a box. I want to know more. Well, she's a very slender lady, I suppose. She's probably quite flexible as well. She looks very thin. But we were saying she's she's a six-footer, right? She's five foot ten. Five I foot ten? Oh, good, thank you. Yeah. That's, I mean, I just want to know... I, I say to Amy, you know that bit in Roger Rabbit where like a cartoon character walks through a wall and it's their perfect silhouette? I'd like a kind of Taylor Swift-shaped box that she just sort of just sort of got into. It would be her perfect silhouette. They just carry over. Like one of arm. those cases for Egyptian mummies. Yes, yeah. perfect. But I was confused when you used the word boxes. I was envisioning a Paul Daniels style scenario where somehow, like, some of her was in one <laughs> box <laughs> and some of her was in another. Half of her in another one. <laughs> Being piled up for extra cunningness. But we don't know the truth, do we? This is like JFK. Well, I mean, this is this is why it's such a source of a source of passionate debate on the internet, David. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel. Personally, I am very pro Taylor, and I can't wait for her new album. Like, I want her to emerge from her box and release her new album. Two, three. I want that. Um, and I wish her well, but it's also really funny. Maybe she'll do a cover of Living in a Box just to continue the 80s theme. <laughs> <laughs> One must say, I think of Gaga's The Fame Monster. Yeah. What a life to lead, right? Because many of her issues with... Uh, the press are to do with her playing that very risky game of courting the press, um, allegedly fake relationships, mm. writing songs almost exclusively about those famous relationships. Therefore, she's is a Faustian pact, isn't it? And ends up with you being carried in and out on a box. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's where it ends. That's where it ends. So, David, anything from you? Uh, so, yeah, briefly, uh, I wanted to mention three things. The first thing is that there is a rumour which is pretty persistent that a tribe called Quester are splitting up. Oh, which crazy. is sad news, uh, somewhat inevitable after Five Dogs' death last year, but 
a major, major band, very incredibly important, but it looks like they're doing two farewell shows, one on each coast, and then that, that's it for them. So sad news. I wanted to mention the uh, VMAs, because I think we're going to get into this later, but Kendrick Lamar leads the way with eight nominations this year after Beyonce swept the board last year, for better or for worse. Mm. It's also worth noting that MTV have got rid of gender classifications. So there is no best female or male artist now, there's just best artist. Right on the VMAs, I think that's amazing. And I think a lot, if not every single award show, is now should be under pressure to follow suit. Imagine if there was a Booker Prize for the best female novelist, it would just be totally preposterous. Yeah. Yes, it would. And it will be interesting to watch over the next five to ten years to see how well represented female artists are in those categories. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there's a lot to discuss and that, keep an yeah. eye on. Yeah, absolutely. I would also like to, to ever so briefly say that the Scissor is up for the best new artist, uh, who I haven't, I've only just started listening who? to. So SZA or SZA for our American listeners. Right. Uh, she's got a track called Drew Barrymore, which I'm particularly happy with, but she is rocking and you should mm-hmm. definitely be into her. says so my new music recommendation. And my last thing, I just want to mention a podcast called Mogul. I don't know if you've heard of this podcast. No. Uh, it's about the life and death of Chris Lighty, who is a major hip-hop mogul, although he did also manage people such as Mariah Carey, back when Mariah Carey was Mariah Carey, putting the read on everybody. Uh, he committed suicide after managing artists such as 50 Cent, um, A Tribe Called Quest, Once Upon a Time, and some other major names. He was uh, absolutely synonymous uh, with that movement. And is across six podcasts, is an amazing insight in not just the man in particular, but hip-hop in general, and I really recommend it. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. Sounds really interesting. Uh, For me, not so much news, although I think we will in a couple of months' time possibly return to the subject of the Mercury Prize, which the shortlist was announced for last week. Probably nearer to the actual ceremony itself, we'll have a podcast which we'll talk about that because we missed out on it last year. I just wanted to provide a shout-out, though, to the first of our interview pods, which was aired between episode 18 on the music of Cardiff and Wales and this one. I spent an hour or so chewing the fat with Simon Bailey, head honcho of Future Perfect and a music promoter with fingers in pies ranging from Oxford to Wolverhampton to Leicester to Bristol. I personally really enjoyed getting Simon's tales of music promotion, its excitements and its pitfalls and would urge you to hunt it out. It's available via iTunes and Podbean and all the usual places. After this break, we shall be delving into 80s pop. Welcome back. Today, as promised, we're going to look back at the super soar-away world of the 1980s, and in particular the music that had a big impact on the popular consciousness during that decade. Of course, it was a much more varied 10 years than is often billed, but there's no doubt that the big-haired, shoulder-padded, video-oriented aspects of the musical landscape have come to define that period. So we're talking 80s pop as predominantly chart music here, with occasional forays into rock, Indie pop, another child of the decade, will be left for another podcast, almost certainly involving Amy. Anyhow, to kick things off, in time on a fashion, we're each going to pick one act that defined the decade for us. And David, you're going to start with a familiar name from podcasts past. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to talk about George Michael in general and Wham, kind of included within that. I wanted to, as ever, like in traditions of times past, establish my credentials or lack thereof. So really my sister, my older sister, so my sister Catherine is three years older than me, she was the big George Michael or Wham fan. 
So uh, Make It Big was released on her eighth birthday. I remember when she was about 13, I hand-drew her a birthday card, which is a little bit kind of Alan Partridge-esque. Thinking back on it, it was a quartered shield, so in all four quarters there was something which represented one of Catherine's like enthusiasms, one of which was Roger, our family dog, and the another was George Michael, specifically George Michael from the Faith video. So it was, it was one of the four big things about my sister that I knew and associated with her. My other thing is that I did see, I was lucky enough to see George live. I don't know if either of you saw no, him no. live. Never. I saw him in Wembley Arena. I have a number of stories from that day, but I'll just give you one, which is I spontaneously and uncontrollably burst into tears when he started singing Father Figure. A kind of sexy song. <laughs> so I don't really know why it was so emotionally affecting. But either way, like I have to admit, yeah, I burst into tears when he came on stage. Do you know stage. why it was? It's because he was promising to take care of you. I know, right? I would have liked George to be my father, although um, yeah. I don't even, don't even know how that would have worked. So anyway, <laughs> I, one thing that kind of occurs to me about George Michael is he was a, he was a mixture of things, particularly in the 80s. So for example, he effortlessly spanned the US and the UK. He was the, the Faith was the biggest selling imported album in the US in the 1980s, which I thought was interesting. He had eight number one singles in the US, seven in the UK, so kind of a good balance there. He was bisexual during the 80s, uh, which is kind of referred to quite cheekily in his greatest hits album called Ladies and Gentlemen. He could also be kind of white bread pop music, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, etc. And he was also the first Caucasian artist to top the R&B and hip-hop chart in the US with Faith. Mm. Uh, And this is kind of most obviously manifested in his duets with kind of key members of black culture, Aretha Franklin in the 80s, uh, but also with people like Mary J. Blige, Whitney Houston and Beyonce too. So he really was a mixture of things uh, as itemised there. In terms of his discography, well, he started in 1981 with Wham's first album, which was called Fantastic, and it included, amongst other things, the classic Club Tropicana, which is a great favourite of mine. The aforementioned Make It Big was released in 1984 and included singles such as Freedom, Everything She Wants and Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. I think even, Rob, you have some connection to that song itself. Well, I almost did. I can remember on Capital Radio, the Gary Crowley show, who was a DJ I liked at the time. He, in the middle of presenting this show on one point, said, if you want to get yourself in a music video, turn up at this warehouse in East London at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning on a Sunday and... and carry something luminous while wearing white clothes which obviously a lot of people did that in the 80s anyway so it would have been quite easy for them to do it and living out in deepest Berkshire I thought I can't do that but had I done it I would have been there on YouTube now in that wake me up before you go go video so and you would have met George and Andrew actually George yeah probably got some freebies you know yeah it's a a near miss Mm. yes yeah. So anyway, this was their first album to go number one on both sides of the Atlantic. So even this early on in his career, George was already conquering the US, which is unusual, I think. In 1985, uh, he helped out his friend Elton John, who was in one of his doldrums at that point by writing, producing and providing the backing vocals to the classic Nikita. 
which is one of my favourite songs of Elton John. And I don't know if you remember the video, but it includes um, Elton, who was the chairman of Watford Football Club at the time, taking Nikita to Vicarage Road and Luther Blissett scoring a bullet header in the last minute. I seem to remember, I remember it all it being well. a bit Dr. Givago, but yeah, I'm imagining that. a majestically fuzzy hat. Yes. Yeah, she wears yeah. a fur hat, but she, yeah. she wears it in, at the Vicarage Road, celebrate, punching the air as Luther Blissett oh, really? scores. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> After that, Wham became the first Western pop act to play China. Yeah, uh, making, very significant. Yeah, yeah, making George the Nixon of pop, and all bands touring today in China follow in his footsteps. And there's a great documentary about that and those mm. other things. In terms of the pivotal year, I think it's 1986, George releases his second solo single, A Different Corner, which includes him derping around in, in pyjamas, sat on the floor, I don't know if you remember that, but mm. great video. He, he releases his last Wham! single, which is Edge of Heaven, which is an overlooked masterpiece. He sells out Wembley Stadium, and actually when I was looking at it today, uh, Gary Glitter was the support act. Awkward. He breaks up Wham! and he writes The Whole of Faith, which is going to be his first solo yeah. LP. Faith, the album in general, and the song's video in particular, I think exemplifies some key aspects of 1980s pop iconography. And you think about those stonewashed blue jeans, the leather jacket, the sunglasses, the amazing hair, the impeccable grooming. I mean, he, he looked beautiful in that video, and it is an absolutely iconic image of him like with his cowboy boots up against that jukebox. From there, he becomes one of the biggest solo acts of the, in the world. He wins multiple Grammys. He wins American Music Awards, Brits. He wins an Ivan Novello for Faith, the single. And he wins the MTV Vanguard Award for his videos. So it was not just music, it was also videos, and that was reflected. So, for example, last year, Rihanna won the Vanguard video. It's, mm-hmm. it's the big award in that award ceremony. Yeah. The singles on that album include Father Figure, the aforementioned tear-stained Father Figure, <laughs> I Want Your Sex, which was banned by MTV, and One More Try, which is a really great kind of soulful song that definitely emphasises R&B side in the singles. And by the end of the decade, he was exhausted by constant promotion, by making those videos, by touring the world, and by all of these award ceremonies. And his next album, Listen Without Prejudice, is just around the corner. It's in the can. It will be released early in 1990. And no one would have guessed the amazing transformation that was just around the corner for George. But in terms of the 1980s itself... Um, they're, they're some of the considerable highlights of his career. Right, a, a really interesting run through. Some of the things that I, to be honest, had kind of forgotten really. I mean, that although he was obviously an ever-present figure in the 80s and a complete megastar, it's good to have it recounted, some of those major events. And I yeah. think a lot of people don't remember now just how big a deal he was mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of sales, in terms of global success. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, he was absolutely enormous, and you know, certainly, you know, he, he is still very much loved by people like you and me. Yeah, um, absolute legend. Legend. Okay, my choice is Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who were a very odd mix of Liverpudlians who burst onto the scene in January 1984 with the unforgettable single, one of the big, big singles of the decade, Relax. A seamy, pumping anthem to sexuality of many different hues, accompanied by a video which in those times would certainly have been labelled at every spare moment with the word raunchy. (laughs) At the time, singer Holly Johnson and Bez-type figure Paul Rutherford shot many with their emphasis on the sexual. This after years of gay life being packaged by the media in a sort of vaudeville and threatening kind of way. Think John Inman, Larry Grace and even Boy George to an extent. There was no doubt about it with these Liverpudlian fellas. 
they were pretty upfront about having sex with men and make no bones about it. It was it was very very prominent in their music. Relax was a stunning tune as well. I mean, a real kind of stomper. I mean, its immortality was secured famously when Mike Reed, the Radio One DJ, banned the single with great flourish on his Radio One breakfast show, and of course that meant that it just sort of sort of shot to number yeah. one for mm-hmm. weeks and weeks. After that, there was a considerable fanfare about Two Tribes, which also was a number one. And it's a track, while in possession of a stunning video featuring sort of spitting image style puppets of Ronald Reagan and short-lived Soviet President Konstantin Chernyenko, wasn't really relaxes equal musically, despite, you know, a lot of backing from Radio 1 and an immense amount of backtracking and, mm-hmm. you know, very, very signature uh, production of the time from Trevor Horn, who was like a big, big name at that time. Really, yeah. really kind of detailed production, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, very, very fussy, uh, over the top, you know, production. Loud. Which, yeah, really loud. Yeah, I remember Art of Noise, he was behind them as well, wasn't he? I think, mm. and they had a great single at that time. And at the end of the year, The Power of Love made it to number one to make it a trio of number ones for the mm. band. It was a big hit at Christmas in 1984. After that, it was pretty much all downhill. As the album that followed the singles, "Welcome to the Pleasure Dome," was was pretty weak. It was it was a double album. I mean, the title track wasn't too bad, but everything else on it had a particularly limp cover of "Ferry Across the Mersey," and sort of the pressures of fame kind of took hold of the band. They were like, you know, pretty keen on living it up. I think, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't think they were really concentrating on the job at hand. <laughs> but they should be congratulated, I think, for adding a touch of edge to the charts of the time, and that's that edge is a word that's used a little bit kind of too too much but I think they certainly did because they were a strange mix of the Tom Selleck like clone zone like Rutherford curly perm scousers with cut off t-shirts who looked as if they were like spoiling for a fight wearing the shell suits and sporting tashes and everything you know it was just incredible mix of people and the sneering Johnson who had one of those kind of ever suggestive sort of innuendo laden personalities that that you know really sort of suited the times so so yeah i mean i'm not sure how much impact they had on the us i mean it's but i I don't think it was anywhere near as much as it was in the uk but i think it's pretty much just relax is that Mm -hmm. right yeah Yeah. that that kind of lit the blue touch paper there but certainly a very memorable band that i think in the whole way they were packaged with sort of videos image everything really represent the decade as well i think even if they weren't quite on the that didn't have the kind of longevity of some of the other acts that we've been talking about. Maybe not musically, maybe not as a band, but surely it's a seminal moment for gay culture. You know, there was no oh. going back after that. For no. a video like that to be banned by to be banned by Radio One, you know, to, for the for the, the for the song to be banned, mostly based on the video, based on the, the the homosexual content in the video, and then for it to shoot straight to number one, which is like the pinnacle of mainstream culture, mm-hmm. yeah. is a huge, huge moment, surely. And, you know, it's like a kind of a year zero for mainstream gay culture in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, Amy, your choice, we're going to go stateside with you. We are going to go stateside, or stateside and then also global. Yes. Because she's a really big deal. Yeah, so I chose Madonna. Um, and I think whilst, like a lot of people might have forgotten just how big a deal Wham and George Michael were in the 80s and just how um, successful Frankie Goes to Hollywood were in the 80s, you definitely couldn't say that for my choice. Madonna is the most successful female musical artist of all time. And I think most people probably know that. It's probably a given. And while she's far from retired, her legacy is so huge that even the title most successful female artist of all time doesn't do justice to her cultural influence, which 
and I'm not exaggerating here, and I mean this, is comparable to the Beatles, you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, here you go. We, we might allow some sort of comeback on this in future episodes. But <laughs> I'm talking see. about cultural influence. Yes, I'm not yeah. talking about musical innovation. I'm talking specifically about pop cultural influence. Yeah, yeah. so enlarge. <laughs> if, if you think about pop music now, it's overwhelmingly female-dominated, right? Mm. And you couldn't say this before Madonna. No, that's true. Mm. You, you know, the charts were majority male performers and bands before mm. 1982, three, when Madonna came out. But since Madonna, most successful, interesting pop stars have been women, with some notable exceptions. And all of them are direct descendants of Madonna in different ways, whether they would admit it or not. So their career trajectories re-step, retread the steps that Madonna first took in the 80s, whether that's with innovative visual iconography like with Beyonce's videos or working your publicised romantic relationships into your career like Taylor Swift or with visual reinvention like Kylie or whether they're trying to be a spokesperson spokesperson for society's outsiders like Lady Gaga or whether it's using sexual, sexual provocation to increase your exposure at the same time as you test social boundaries like Britney or Rihanna or Nicki Minaj or pretty much all of them, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'd say all of the above. Or yeah. everyone. <laughs> so yeah, there's a tried and tested formula there that Madonna, that Madonna created of equating sexuality with power, because when you do that, you exploit the entertainment industry's deeply entrenched sexism, but you also get to subvert it and reclaim it, in a way. And I'm not saying that this isn't problematic, because there's something of having cake and also of eating it going on there, mm. but it's everywhere, and it's Madonna's DNA through and through. Right. Mm. So... You know, but she was also really, she did a lot of really good things. She surrounded herself with HIV positive dancers, which were also men of colour, by the way, and she encouraged them to kiss on her stage. This was at the height of, of AIDS panic. She showed women that it was possible to be successful and popular while not always being accommodating or nice. That's something that we still struggle with now. Mm-hmm. She taught a whole generation of women and gay men that their desires and their rights were important, and she did it all through euphoric, wonderful, timeless pop music a medium notorious for running beautiful young girls through its mill and spitting them out. So all hail Madonna. Yes. The and queen of pop. Favourite, your favourite tracks? Okay. Like a Prayer is probably her best song. My favourite is Justify My Love because I think it's an example of the music being as transgressive as the video was. Yeah. Mm. What about you guys? Well, it's just to find my love in the 80s, though. It was that like no. 1990? <sighs> Look, oh, okay. controversial. Yeah. It's, it's 1990, <laughs> but I think it counts because it's on... Get out of this one, Amy. We could have the, the, the long... 1980s pop here. Fucking Hobbs Bormian. Yeah, the long 1980s. Long 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must have been recorded in the 80s. Fucking hell. <laughs> You've just gone to put the parental advice. Sorry, my, on my language, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to Madonna and her family. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's the cause. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not a huge fan, I must admit, you know, and, and although I would totally back you on the cultural significance and, and the importance of I mean, anything, particularly when Like a Virgin came out. I mean, I think, I mean, Holiday mm. to start with, I think was like fairly sort of throwaway, but then when Like a Virgin came out, that was like a pretty significant moment, I think, mm. that was early on. But probably, and I think David and I are in danger of maybe ganging up on your ear, and La Isla Bonita might be the one. But, yeah. It's a minor work. Minor work. <laughs> I mean, I would 
wouldn't say I even like it that much, but I think like within Madonna's oeuvre. You know, I don't know. I've got nothing against it, but mm. to say it's her best single is a stretch, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would to give a shout-out to Like a Prayer. I think Like a Prayer, the song and the video, when, when combined, when thought about together, mm-hmm. is almost overwhelming. I was thinking about my favourite videos of all time, and I do think that Like a Prayer is probably in the top five. I remember seeing it as a kid and being totally overwhelmed by this lady... Carrying a rosary, I think. Yeah. Certainly in black lingerie, mm-hmm. dancing ecstatically, stroke orgasmically into a church. Mm-hmm. Thereafter, reviving a crying black Jesus and turning him into a living being. Mm-hmm. Then going outside and dancing and riding around whilst crosses burn behind her. Did you have you missed out the bit where she gives him a blowjob? Okay, then he, she also does that, yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's a cornucopia. Now that's a four-minute video. Look, look, this is going to take us a lot. This is, do you know, she was an innovator of visual iconography and pop music. What can I say? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm saying all of those things in a good way. I'm not sure about giving black crying back Jesus to blow job. I don't know. That that thing to one side, that is a heck of a song and a heck of a video and made an absolutely indelible mark on me. Combination of gospel music with 80s club music, gay oh, club music. That's amazing. Put those things together and you've got magic. I know, and I don't know how long it's been since you last heard that song, Rob. But like, it's well worth revisiting. It has not dated one no, bit. No, it sounds amazing. And would... And would absolutely wipe the floor with 99.3% of all modern music. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can put it modern on our music. Spotify we can put it on our Spotify list, I think, for this episode. Moving swiftly on from that. Those that's a very good kind of, you know, three really good examples, I think, of the 80s culture. We could have picked so many more. We could so have picked many. kind of, you know, loads of them and hopefully some names will come up through the rest of it. And just looking at the eighties as it started, you know, transitioning from the seventies. What what kind of things do you feel were a continuum from the 70s and, and where do you think the 80s set a kind of year zero? I mean, I'm thinking mainly about, you know, a lot of the production techniques. We'd seen synthesizers used a fair bit in the 70s, you know, mm. with particularly with Kraftwerk and then later on, but it wasn't really until the 80s. I mean, it's interesting that I think Human League's Don't You Want Me was number one at the turn of the decade, which mm. I think is quite a kind of significant fact. Yeah, that uh, is interesting. Because that's quite a representative single of those first year or two of the 80s. In it terms it of was 1981. Oh, was it? Oh, right, I'm wrong then. Yeah, yeah. But um, certainly very early in the decade, you had all the other new romantic stuff, you know, Visage, etc. And then a moving edge, you could possibly even sort of shoehorn you know, Duran Duran and Colts Club into the back end of that. What what were the where do you think what, what became new at that time, do you think, you know, in terms of uh, you know, sort of musical sort of experimentation or, or sort of techniques? Yeah. Um, I suppose you just had it's similar in some respects to kind of early naughty cinema in that digital production techniques took over everything. Yeah. Um, and that is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. It's very innovative but then it's sort of uh, led to maybe a kind of sort of metronomic sort of soul soullessness or um, uh, kind of a you know a sort of a slightly unreal quality to it. But you had that trickle down, I suppose, from like you were saying, from craft work in the seventies, and then through post punk bands, and then bands like Suicide who were playing with synthetic sounds, and then you had that trickle down into the mainstream pop. And there were bands that did that, that incorporated those synth sounds really well. And I think. Human League were one. They did it extremely well. New Order, who obviously had that lineage from from post punk, 
um, from Joy Division did it extremely well and managed to make those synth sounds sound really warm and, and, and really kind of in, invested a lot of emotion into them and that was partly I think because of because of those emotive kind of bass lines that work so very well from Peter Hook um, so that's that's an example of it done well and then there are examples of, uh, of, of too much synth the drum machines um, the uh, you know the the dance beats Leaving it feeling rather inorganic, I suppose. Yeah, and I feel as the, as the decade wore on, unfortunately, there was a little bit more too much use of sort of synthesised sort of you know guitar solos and mm. and sort of saxophones, and so there's a kind of tinniness to a lot of the stuff from about eighty four, eighty five that I, I did find particularly unenjoyable. But I mean, I think that those early years, you certainly some good stuff. I mean, interestingly, I would argue that in America, the continuum between the seventies and the eighties was less marked. I think, you know, like I think that kind of adult-orientated rock, mm. sort of soft rock, you know, people like Foreigner, The Cars, you know, we're like really a continuation of the kind of Fleetwood Mac kind of, you know, very, very smooth kind yeah. of driving music, as they used to call it. I don't know, I haven't heard anybody use that phrase for a few years now, but, you know, you know <laughs> what I mean. Uh, drive that, time. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was drive time was like a show on, on Radio 1, and, yeah. you know, and it, and it was actually, I think, a lot of the innovation at that point, the very early 80s, was, was probably primarily the UK until the likes of Madonna and Michael Jackson and, and Prince kind of just came in and blew it all out of the water. But I don't, don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah. I can see certainly there's it's just a continuum. I mean, I suppose politics, the 80s, are defined by Thatcher and Reagan because they were pretty much there in power yeah. for the entirety of the mm. decade. But otherwise, I'd give a bit of a shout-out to dear old David Bowie, like Scary oh, Monsters... Yeah is a blueprint for new romanticism. Mm-hmm. And he was using synths in low from about 76. And that that, quite, that takes a bit of time to co- go from experimentation to mainstream. Yeah. Um, but also I think that it was, the producer was dead important. The, the producer hadn't been that important since the Svengali's in the 60s. No, that's right. I, mean, I mentioned Trevor Horn earlier on. It was incredibly kind of complicated, mm-hmm. kind of dense music, mm. you know. It just seemed to be a whole new world of toys that he could play with, you know. It's yeah. such a big sound. I don't think we'd ever heard anything that sounded that big before Trevor Horn. Really. Yeah. And yeah. Stock Cake and Mortimer, like the less we forget, they 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 became a studio that was a factory, and actually it didn't really matter if it was Brother Beyond or Kylie, it was coming out of Stock Cake and Mortimer, therefore it was going to be number one, mm. which we hadn't seen since sort of Motown or yeah, since well since the sixties, I don't think yeah, yeah since Brill Building and all that stuff, yeah. it was like a brand. Yeah, it was incredible and it was incredibly powerful as well for <laughs> as long as it lasted. We're going to return to that a bit later on, actually, because I think it's very interesting. But of course, the other big, big thing that was a major change at the onset of the eighties was sort of video and and the, the rise of MTV. Uh, I mean, I think we'd seen video kind of at the end of the previous decade, but not all bands or very few bands could afford to do it. But then suddenly it became like absolutely something you had to do, particularly if you wanted to any any kind of chart placing. So, so how, you know, how, how did you see that? You know, how do you define the importance of that? I mean, do you think, and is it stayed with us forever since? I guess it has, yeah. It has, but it's morphed over time because obviously MTV doesn't play music videos anymore. It's a reality TV show channel now. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it, um, it the, uh, the, the heads of the, the channel didn't like the fact that they were reduced, they were relying on um, other studios for their content, so they started producing their own and then the... Um, 
the uh, you know the, the way that ended up was that all of their their content was produced by themselves. It just all happened to be reality TV show content, I suppose. Um, but no, I mean it's true uh, that before say before the very very early eighties, there weren't very many music videos at all, um, and it was kind of the only the only reason you you, you a, a, a record company might produce a music video uh, because they were trying to promote a band abroad, but that band couldn't go on tour. And, but generally, not very many bands produced music videos. Um, MTV launched in 1981, and it wasn't considered to be... The, not very many... It, it was kind of an outlier at the time, and it seems obvious now that it, sh- it, it would have been, because we have so many TV, show, TV channels, um, and it, it seems now, um, in retrospect, to, it was inevitably going to be a huge success. But at the time, record companies didn't really want to give their, their content away for free, but they would give songs to radio stations for free because they knew it was good promo, but they had no guarantee, of course, that a music channel was going to do the same for them. Um, and so they, they didn't want to give up the rights. And so it was a venture, so it launched in 1981, MTV did, originally, in the US, and it was a venture between Warner and American Express, and the, the only content that they had when they launched was uh, Warner's own videos. They only had about 200 videos when they launched. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah they didn't mm. have very many at all. And and, uh, and when they, they had the launch party, they had to go all the way to New Jersey to have it because they, they could be, because no cable company was carrying it in Manhattan because so many cable companies said, I'm not doing that. That looks, that's, nobody's going to want to watch that. Um, but what, you know, what, the, the, what those execs and cable companies didn't understand was that teenagers lived for the three minutes a week where they could see their idols. They lived for that. If you think back to, you know, the, the 1970s and how people who were children and teenagers at that time remember so vividly the, that, that one performance that David Bowie did on Top of the Pops. It was in, incredibly important to them. And there were some a small number of people who were under 30 and still remembered how important that moment was. And... So um, they launched MTV, but it really wasn't doing very well um, at first until the there was a an ad campaign called We Want Our MTV, which had M- Mick Jagger on it and David Bowie and Cindy Lauper and other people. And then that created a demand because like, young people started phoning their cable networks and demanding that their local cable channel carried MTV. And thereafter, you know, it didn't take very long before every single, single had to be released with a music video and it really was a seismic shift that was just took, took a year or two. Yeah, because it wasn't until a few years after that that in the UK at least people had more than the, the four or five channels, was it? Well, actually only three channels. So I think Channel 4, I think, didn't start until about 1984 or 1983 or something. No, I mean, we're talking in the US, though. In yeah, America, yeah, course, in America, they obviously, have they have yeah. a plethora of different channels and most of them were dedicated to one type of programming. You had like yeah. the news channel, you had the weather channel, you know, yeah. and, and, and so I suppose a music channel is just a kind of logical progression mm. from that. The, the companies, the, 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 um, that produced the records just didn't think that there was going to be a market for mm. it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an audio medium, it's not a visual medium. Yeah. Of course, it is a visual medium now as much as it is an audio medium. So, you know, those early years of producing music videos were kind of a wild west, but we did get a lot of good, of, uh, of, of very um, prevalent directors from those early years you know I think David Fincher directed oh, really? mm. Express Yourself and Vogue and lots and lots of other music right. videos in the 80s that's where he cut his teeth and he's just one I mean he's I think the most notable example from 80s videos mm. I was in the Brooklyn subway station on the weekend where Scorsese filmed Bad 
Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just Fincher, there were some major mm. filmmakers. Mm. I, I, I think the 80s is the, the, the golden era, the golden age of videos. Bad, it's like a mini movie. Oh, it's brilliant. I never even realised until a few years ago that it's got this whole backstory. There's like about 10 or 15 minutes before minutes he long. dons the leather and then goes and dances mm. in that car park. Yeah. And talking of Wacko Jacko, Thriller was probably the most famous video of the 80s, yeah. I think. It's absolutely yeah. magnificent. Yeah, yeah. Like, who didn't do dance GCSE and be told to basically make up your own dance routine to Thriller yeah. I know I have <laughs> number of times yeah. love that video I think it's absolutely amazing and like if you look at the best selling artists of the 80s all of them are synonymous with the visual medium as well as you are yeah absolutely like, you, you, yeah. like Michael Jackson was an absolute king of the video he, he he produced some of the greatest videos of all time I think Thriller would be up there you know, good shout mm. Madonna similarly George Michael Stroke Wham, I know, you know, I'm biased here, but like Club Tropicana was such an amazingly fun, you know, like thinking about t-shirts and Frankie Says Relax, like the Choose Life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, yes, I mean, video clearly completely changed the game. I mean, I, Top of the Pops you mentioned there, Amy, which I, I I wouldn't say necessarily the 80s again was the kind of gold near that, but it was often like caught a bit between two stalls because whether a an, an act would appear in person or whether it would be the video was a big deal but it always seemed a big deal when a big person like Madonna actually turned up in the studio mm. which had meant they'd actually set foot on British soil I think that that was good and they'd often alternate so one week it would be in the studio next week they'd show the video and Top of the Pops of course had the dancers and everything and it was still sort of yeah. very much a kind of water cooler television I think mm-hmm. at that point for people in Britain anyway would like sit in front of it and that incredible mm. influence on the charts mm. Yeah, yeah, we always watched it. Yeah. Did it. When did they stop having the dancers, like Pan's people? Did they stop doing sure. that in the 80s? Well, it was Legs and Co in the 80s, I think. Oh, yeah. Legs and Co. Because <laughs> yeah. at some point, video, music videos must have made them redundant. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think it was till well into the 90s, that's what I'd like to think anyway. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, certainly influential. And of course, like the jockeying amongst record companies for getting airplay on that must have been like incredible in terms of chart position and all the rest of it. When I was first living in London, I managed, my mate was working at the BBC and I managed to go see Top of the Pops being filmed. Of course, I was listening to my whatever it is, I'm just thinking I was above this. I was unbelievably excited to be there. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, I bet it would have been. I'd love to have gone. So in terms of why, more widely, how did 80s pop sort of interact with other cultural and political trends of the era? I mean, to my mind, it was pretty embedded, really, with lots of things. What do you think are the main kind of trends and things that came out? you know, that, that pop was very much central to and a part of during that decade. I'm sure Amy has got a lot of interesting stuff to stay on this. I would I kind of, I'd like to concur with her analysis of Madonna and that kind of raising some really, really big and important issues, particularly around the feminism and the female voice and female yeah. empowerment. I think that that was becoming that much more of an operative conversation. Probably one generation on from the first generation of the 60s to have things like birth control and a female participation greater female participation in the workforce and stuff yeah. looking down this list as well there are a lot of black artists yeah which are both male and female so we shouldn't forget people like Whitney Houston who was absolutely gargantuan in the 80s particularly in the US but that's important mm. I think yeah like sort of gay panic HIV AIDS epidemic and all of that stuff was some of that is being worked out in some of the, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood talking uh, about gay life in a very honest way and Madonna and her HIV positive dancers 
that that stuff is groundbreaking and wasn't part of the agenda in the in the seventies certainly. Mm. So those things kind of occurred to me. What, what do you have? Yeah, I think the eighties in the eighties pop music really learned how to thrive in controversy, and uh, I think you know it. Uh, they understood that this is going to drive attention. That Frankie Frankie goes to Hollywood. We're banned from Radio One. Went straight to Number One, and then as a result, how much more mainstream was gay culture as a result of, of, of that publicity, you know. So in a way, pop music seeks exposure, that leads it to controversy, and then kind of that's an impetus, into an impetus that drives progressivism and, and the normalisation of things like gay culture, and that's a really good thing, I think. And going back to MTV for a, a little bit, I think you, the, the first kind of about five to ten years of, of, of MTV's existence really helps you understand how much more mainstream black music became over the course of the 80s. Because when it launched, MTV self-identified as a rock and roll channel, which meant that it didn't really play black artists and they would never give, the re- that, never give that as the reason that they wouldn't mm. play black, art, black artists, and yet they didn't all the same. And then there was... Um, David Bowie spoke out about it in, I think, 1985. Um, they rejected to play Super Freak, Super Freak by Rick James, which is one of the biggest chart hits of the year in the US. And, and it was an outrage, and then Rick James uh, spoke out very vocally. And then, uh, uh, I, and then I think that at one point they refused to play Billie Jean, which is the most ridiculous commercial mm. decision I've ever heard. That's all early 80s. But now, of course, you know, by the late 80s, you know, uh, uh, R&B, well, hip-hop certainly was certainly a mainstay of MTV when I was watching it in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think it got, uh, there was the the first MTV, the first hip-hop show on MTV was called Yo! MTV Raps! (laughs) (laughs) But that was in 1987. Um, So it just goes to show you how far he came. That's earlier than I would have thought, actually. I mean, I think that is interesting. I mean, we we did a hip-hop episode with David, and we'll do another one. You know, we did the one three or four episodes ago, and we're not going to sort of touch on it that much today because it was something that emerged in the 80s, but really interesting to hear that. I mean, obviously, the big party... Of, of the 80s was was you know came about for you know very sad reasons that was like live aid really which i think mm. was like a huge event that you know incalculable kind of viewers across the world so what are your what are your thoughts on that um you know and, and like the influence that had and of course it was preceded by band aid singles so you know it was a sort of big big phenomenon wasn't it yeah. Was a big phenomenon. Did it start? Did it start a, a trend for charity singles? Was that the first one? Mm-hmm. Might have been. I'm going to have another another mention of one of those a bit later on. But anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it almost seemed to possibly like you know the watershed. I think like if you think that that video for Band Aid that was like the they were the big people at the time, and you know a lot of them continued mm. to become really famous after that. But a lot of them that was possibly sort of towards the end of their last hurrah. So what like Boomtown Rats? Well, <laughs> yeah, he's the main one. Mid year, of course, theirs was a bit before yeah. that. But maybe Spandau Ballet, you know, really had their peak before that, and they were like really central to that. Arguably, obviously, Wham as an entity as well without George Michael. So yeah, yeah. but yeah, was, I mean, the two events also were very very interesting. I think the, the US and the UK ones were quite different. I think the US one. 
did at the time, although Madonna and others played, it, it did owe a lot to like the music of the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of kind of hippie-ish stuff going on, you know. Was there? Yeah, yeah. And, um, I didn't watch it. Yeah. Isn't that a shameful thing to admit? Yeah, but I think we've been quite young without being rude. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, but even so, yeah. you know. Mm. Yeah, it was on late, the, the American one, of course, you know, because of the time difference. Right. So things didn't really get going until really late on. But, um, yeah, I remember a lot of the performances were actually a bit disappointing, I, I remember. I think, and this is maybe an example of how a lot of bands during that era were very reliant on the studio for, for, for how well they came across. And mm-hmm. um, when thrown in to a situation like that where there wasn't a lot of room for prima donna type behaviours, you couldn't fiddle around on stage with a soundtrack for a long time. I do remember like a lot of the actual music was... So so. It was shambolic, so. wasn't yeah, it? In places, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely terrible. That's what I've heard. Yeah, mm. yeah. and then badly Qu- organised event. Yeah. Queen, Freddie Mercury tried to take it over a bit. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> surprising. Yeah, but and then of course you two are about we haven't discussed here at all who did emerge at that point and mm. you know probably straddled the eighties and nineties into sheer hugeness and I think we'll have to return to that era at another time. But but you know I mean this is it. I mean trying to encapsulate the 80s in one podcast is extremely difficult and we're finding this as we move on really um, it's worth noting I didn't know this until today that the Wham split single which is the greatest double A side of all time and you can keep Penny Lane and Stalker Fields forever of, of, of Last Christmas and Everything She Wants is in the top 10 best selling singles of the 80s but never reached number one because of Bad Aid yeah but they donated all of their profits to charity to yeah. the same charity to write on George, I mean, like he did, he put his money where his mouth was. Literally, it all came out after his death. But he mm. was incredibly involved in a number of charities mm. and charitable causes. Yeah. He wasn't just a write on dude, you know, putting his fist in the air and saying I'm with the miners. He was, he was actually going out and, and investing and helping people out throughout the entirety of his career. Yeah. And there was an embargo on a lot of that activity, mm. wasn't there? He didn't want anyone to know about yeah, it. He didn't want any publicity. He did it secretly, yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. something else. And David, you've got, I think you've got some stats together on some of the, some of the bestsellers, haven't you? Yeah, so I said at the top that pop is good because it can be objectively quantified mm. by the number of units you shift, right? Pop is in popular. So I just did a little um, analysis between the US and the UK in terms of singles and albums. Uh, worth saying, that, so let's start with the US. So in the, in the, in the 80s, the best-selling singles artist was, was Michael Jackson. and he, he, spent, he had nine number one hits and he spent uh, 27 weeks at, at the top of the charts. Right? So mm-hmm. absolutely dominated. Funnily enough, George Michael, stroke wham, is second. There you go. And actually, and this is the big thing that probably we need to sit down and have a little think about, Phil Collins is there. Oh, yeah. Phil, and Phil Collins, of course, played both Live Aids, yeah. famously. Yeah. He also dumped his wife by fax, but we won't yeah. get into it, Phil. Mm. But um, he is in both charts in terms of best-selling albums of the 80s in the UK and the US. Phil Collins mm. and his album, No Jacket Required, is an absolute monster seller. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, te- I wouldn't be able to tell you what's on it. And he was a studio as on okay. it, but he, oh, he's so ab- and one more night, I think. But he, he totally. I mean, he was so representative of the era at the time. I mean, the whole kind of wearing, rolling the sleeves of your jacket up, yucky, sort of look. yucky pop. Yeah, yeah, very mm. much so. I mean, Paul Young, maybe a bit before him, also fits yeah, into that. Yeah, very clean cut. Yeah. Was yeah. in the air tonight. Used member being Miami Vice and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like he's a he's a forgotten figure because he's such an unpleasant man. Yeah, but he was humongous, 
humongous. Let, let's think about the people who he was bigger than in the 80s in the US. Madonna. Yeah. Whitney Houston. What? Lionel Richie. Yeah. Stevie Wonder. Bon Jovi and Prince are all below him yeah. in se- best selling singles of the 80s. But he did represent, Prince. I mean, the bar, the bar culture in the 80s, Collins, kind of, is really reminiscent of that. You know, the sort of bars you see in 80s films and very mm. s- slick you know, kind of, you know, cocktails, all that kind of thing. He had twice as many number ones in the 80s in Prince. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But that's a great memory joker, yeah. That Mm -hmm. is good. Well, you know, is that necessarily a bad look? If it's good enough for the hip-hop community, it should be good enough for us, right? Mm. I maintain that Easy Lover is one of the best singles of the 80s. Philip Bailey was his co-singer on that, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, wait wait a minute. What's this about the hip-hop community and Phil Collins? The hip-hop community samples Phil Collins. Hip-hop community reveres Phil Collins. Well, yeah. there you go. They take a lot of drugs. Of course, he was drummer in Genesis. I can't speak for them as the white girl sitting over in the corner here. But from what I've read in think pieces around the internet, okay. this is the thing. Well, um, <laughs> shut my mouth. So, in terms of um, best-selling singles of the '80s in the UK, well, it's dominated by "Do They Know It's Christmas," mm. it shifted 3.7 million units, and was the best-selling single of all time until. Uh, a Candle in the Wind, 97. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax was second by some margin. Then it was Stevie Wonder's I Just Called oh. to Say I Love You, number one in 18 countries. Oh, my God. And diabolical as well. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think you're in the minority there. I mean, it shifted oh, tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's the Human League, Don't You Want Me, which I think we've mentioned. And yeah, great tune, right? yeah. Then, then it's Two Tribes. So Frankie Goes to Hollywood has two singles in the top ten. Mm. Or t- actually, top five. Then it's that split single, uh, Last Christmas, Everything She Wants. Karma Chameleon. Because, oh, yeah. wow, yeah. you know, talking Major. about mainstreaming gay culture, I, I, re- I remember reading a lot of commentary on that first appearance on Top of the Pops of Boy George, and people going, is that a boy or a girl? Oh, yeah. like, literally couldn't figure mm. it out. Which sounds like one of those anecdotes, but it kind of No, it was absolutely the case, yeah. Um, Careless Whispers in there. So George has two, well, he has three appearances in the top ten because, of course, he was a major mm. part of Band-Aid. Jennifer Rush's The Power of Love is at number nine. Mm. The Power Ballad. We should do a whole episode on oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, last but by no means least, Dexie's Midnight Runs, oh. Come On Eileen. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. Not a fan, Amy? It's not that it's a bad song. It's just, right. it's just, a, it's a great song, but I associate it with too many crappy nights out and weddings. It's a wedding. And weddings. Yeah. Mm. I'm on the just tainted floor. love we haven't mentioned, which is the other big. But it didn't shift enough yeah. units to get into the top ten, right? No. So let me do a little quiz with you then. What do you think is the best-selling album of the '80s in the UK? I mean, by a long way. Album of the 80s. By a long way. Selling up because at the time there was a little bit of a kind of disjunct between album artists and single artists. So mm. I'll, I'll give and you a clue. We regardless. haven't mentioned them yet. No. We haven't. It's not. I've, it's not thriller. Then mm-hmm. how can it not be thriller? I think I'm going to have to go and guess just based on the fact that when I was at the sixth form, which was between about eighty-five and eighty-seven. Everybody had this album apart from me and a couple of other people who were listening to the Smiths, and it was was it Brothers in Arms, Dire Straits. It certainly was. Rob, well done, <laughs> well done. I mean, it is ten that, points to Rob. That is in both lists of the US and UK, but it was number one in the UK. It was an absolute monster, released on my sixth birthday, May the thirteenth, nineteen eighty-five, and it was. Again, I'm just going to, don't want to belabor the point, but this sort of continuum with the 70s, really, because I think that's quite a 70s sounding album. With 70s, 80s, that whole rock, 
adult-oriented rock. Yeah, Yeah. that that phrase, AOR. That that was still totally bubbled along in its own ecosystem, irrespective of everything else that was happening, all the way up to kind of journey, don't stop believing being revived like four or five years ago. You know, people, there's always going to be an audience for that kind of thing. So, mm. yeah, but of course they sound so American as a band. They're actually from Newcastle, aren't mm-hmm. they? So, a, a bit like another band from earlier on in the 80s who were massive, The Police, you know, who, you know, British band, but sound very American. Yeah, so. and Jamaican. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so Dire Straits is followed up by two Michael Jackson albums, So Bad and Thriller, in that order. Because I think Thriller was much bigger in the US. Right. Um, there's some stats on Thriller. I mean, no one can tell me how much it actually sold, but the, the figure I've got here is 66 million copies. I mean, it's just oh, <laughs> bonkers. Uh, Kylie's Kylie, 1988, Stock Aiken and Waterman through and through is the fifth biggest selling album oh, right. in the UK. In the UK. Whitney Houston is next with Whitney who spent the most cumulative weeks at number one on the albums chart by any female artist during the 80s mm-hmm. again we're just not talking about Whitney enough I think it's like, just like looking at Patrick Bateman's music collection isn't I it? I know yes. right <laughs> we get to Huey Lewis, <laughs> <laughs> Lewis Fleetwood Mac Lewis. which I'm sure will come up later with Haim mm. uh, their tango in the night is, is next you've got Phil Collins again bless him U2's Joshua Tree is there mm, which you'd expect in the top yeah. 10 yeah. and then finally funny enough um, Madonna's True Blue with its lead single La Isla Bonita mm. um, uh, rounds out the top mm. 10 mm. In, in the US it's slightly different and I'll just whip through this because we're already running long but uh, it's funny how many rock albums are on here so ACDC's Back in Black is second mm. Springsteen's Born in the USA is third Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction is fourth yeah. which I, yeah. I was surprised by you've also got Beyond Dire Straits Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet and Def Leppard's Hysteria all in the top ten yeah. so it goes to show there's much that, more guitar oriented. yeah they, they, they weren't they were nowhere near as um was poppy. It's I don't think. really emphasises the difference, doesn't it? it yeah, does. fascinating. And you mentioned a bit earlier there, just to round off this conversation on the edge, Stock at Kim Waterman, which we talked about, has come up a couple of times. I mean, to my mind, this was a little bit of a watershed moment because up until round about eighty seven, eighty eight, you know, most of the acts like had a big say in the development they, they formed as bands you know so bands like Spandau Ballet would form there's a great documentary about them by the way which I really urge you to watch but you know they formed as bands Duran Duran all these kind of people formed as acts artists they probably came first and then got people on board to to kind of promote them etc whereas Stock Cake and Waterman seemed to think right okay we've got this formula we've got like this various beat this beat this big snare drum we've got like you know a sort of synthesized tune over the top who's a well-known face at the moment and thought right Kylie Minogue Jason Donovan you mentioned Brother Beyond earlier on or, or whatever and then this led towards the kind of boy band thing yeah. and so it did to, to sort of uneducated mind anyway which I would include myself in that appear to be more cynically manufactured by that point you know the, the pop music thing you know rather than being something that had grown more organically but Amy I think you might have a slight counter argument to that okay yeah, I'm going to defend Stock Cake and Waterman now which isn't <laughs> going to make me very popular because yeah. I know it's not exactly cool but no I uh, I think yeah, so so Stock Aiken Waterman. Okay, so first first things first, Stock Aiken Waterman started out in the underground scene. Mm. They started out in the gay underground club scene. They are uh, they their early singles were like high energy influenced 
Um, was Hazel to, Dean one of theirs? I don't know. I don't she know, was, actually. Yeah, but she was very much part of that. Yeah, yeah but yeah, if, you know, yeah. if you listen to Spin Me Round Like a Record, which yeah, is their first yeah. major hit, yeah, yeah. that is a fantastic song and it draws from a lot of that energy and a lot of those sounds from the gay, the, gay, mm. the underground gay club scene. And over time, it evolved into a factory, basically. But they hit on a winning formula in the same way that Brill Building hit on a winning formula. Um, the same way that, you know, like, any, any musical genre is a winning formula and it had a limited shelf life. But, you know, but, you know, even a lot of the artists now, like a lot of, I can't call artists, they're not artists. A lot of the manufactured pop bands now, when you yeah. look at them, a lot of the songs still hold up really well. Like if you look at Bananarama's back catalogue, it's amazing. The songs yeah. are brilliant. The production is shonky as hell, but the songs are still really good. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's interesting. You were talking about, you know, that that two tribes mentality that really that pop culture in the eighties and in the UK anyway was all about. You had the the shiny, glossy, Rega Thatcher inspired mainstream with its synthy sounds and its consumerism, and then you had, you know, the kind of the the bedroom indie pop, um, you know, Morrissey listening indie scene but you can't have one without the other and I don't think we would ever have had such an interesting indie scene if we didn't have that you know shiny glossy sparkly pop that dominated in the charts for it to react against and famously of course uh, Carly Minogue was on an indie label you know they, they were counted as indie and they would appear in the indie charts you know like above <laughs> people like Bogshed and this kind of thing, <laughs> which is like quite interesting anyway we're, we're going to have to round up the 80s pop chat there but I think there's been so many interesting things that come up that you will see this particular scene mined for many podcasts to come both in terms of more detailed analyses of individual artists but also you know looking at the era again in great number but thanks very much for those guys after this we're going to be turning our attention to our album of the month Hello, welcome back. And our album of the month this month is Heim's. We think it's pronounced Heim, but I think there's been some debate as to whether it's Heim. Something to tell you, L.A. Quartet or... No, they're three three sisters. Three sisters. I think it's their second album. The first one was Days Are Gone. Thoughts, folks? Well, let me go first because I think I put this forward. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of them and I, I like their first album and actually that album was born out of, or it did, does not include a bunch of EPs that they did. They were sort of movers and shakers. So like they had Paul Thomas Anderson, the world's greatest director, who's a friend of a friend to direct their most recent videos, which is quite impressive. Someone just recently compared them to Wilson Phillips and I mentioned this <laughs> to Amy and she was like, yeah, totally. totally. And of course, you know, Wilson Phillips were the the offspring of the Beach Boys and Mamas and Papas. Yeah. And actually, I looked up after we spoke, Amy, that it was Brian Wilson's offspring. Brian Wilson's offspring. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's from the absolute, you know, the source, the yeah. mother load. The album itself, if I may, is at risk of sounding so background that you'll wake up 10 minutes later and think, is that the same song I was listening to 10 minutes yeah. ago? Yes. Um, it, but it does have some high points. I, I, I point out in particular right now, so yeah. the, the single that um, has the great video, the kind of one-shot video from Paul Thomas Anderson, which definitely emphasises something which they're trying to get across with this album, which is that they are genuine artists. 
So this idea that they're swapping around and doing different things on different instruments or whatever, it absolutely captures the energy and tension of a live performance. I think it's an amazing video. Maybe I'm talking about the video more than the music there. And also I'm really a big fan of Ready For You, which actually breaks down in its refrain into faith. Mm. And they did that deliberately, again, something to do with their aesthetic. I think they are an interesting band, not making particularly interesting music, and their, and their first album was that much more interesting for being a bit cobbled together because they did it on the road. Uh, I, I heard the other day that um, they stuck in a bunch of garage band samples thinking we'll fix that later and run out of time. And so the album has a, a kind of collage feel and a real sort of uh, a bit sort of made up, a bit improvised. Because remember, pop music should be fun. And I think this is pop music. They take themselves too seriously. I mean Wilson Phillips comparison in the, in the best possible sense because I like Wilson Phillips. Amy, what do you think? Oh, I like it. I don't love it. I think it's been... I think they are so successful now, there is too much at stake for them to make something that's really interesting or a great progression from what was going on last time. I I just I just find, like you say, I just find it a bit generic and that even goes down to the lyrics. The lyrics are so wholly unmemorable. Like I can't... It's a struggle for me to even remember any of the one songs. Like, I'll have to look at my notes to tell you which song I like. I found it in silence. Yeah, I like that one. Couldn't remember can remember it's it's just what is what was interesting about that for about their formula was that they there's they uh they enjoy kind of californian late 70s pop and they enjoy 90s r&b like like late 90s early 90s r&b and they are good at close sweet female vocal harmonies and that is the common denominator that ties those two genres together Mm -hmm. and that's in interesting and it's a winning formula and it's it's great and it's fun it's very it's very winning and it's very likable and it's very easy to listen to but i i just was left wanting more i just wanted them to be doing something that was more emotionally engaging or a little bit more stylistically adventurous i suppose yeah i mean i think uh, pitchfork described it as glossy but slightly interesting you're slightly complex and I think there are some interesting kind of detail underneath the the kind of the sheen which I think does sort of elevate it above you know a lot of kind of purely for bucks rock but I'd have to second David really I I, I think it's lacking songs really I think it's a kind of mood thing I mean the band they inevitably recall a little bit of Warpaint who are probably like a more sort of you know Sort of alternative version, you know, again from LA, again sort of all female band um, with lots of interesting sounds going on, but slightly less glossy. But both bands, I think, suffer from a bit of a lack of songs, to be honest. I think, and I think with Haim, the first single, I think the lead off is is strong. You know, I think that's that strong. But yeah. I think just overall, I, I mean, I, I I think it would be unfair to use the word vapid, but I mean, it, it it doesn't really sort of strike at me. It's definitely not my type of thing. It's a breakup album. Yeah. And actually, I read an interview with with the kind of the one who put together the vocals or the the the, sort of the lyrics. And it was quite an old breakup, and so she was surprised at how little it bothered her. Now she was coming back to it, and I think that basically is a great description of the album. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's talking about a breakup that you're not actually that bothered about. It's talking about, it's writing about something that you no longer care about. Yeah, yeah, and that absolutely. does the the, the 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 album is a bit soporific in places. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's certainly one from the background. But let me tell you, when I was in a cab in New York. 
I heard what is in the top ten at the moment, like fucking Ed Sheeran. I'm sorry to go back to him, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There was so much shit music. This is this is certainly we're, t- we're debating the top three percent of music here. I still yeah, think yeah. that they are good enough mm-hmm. to, to 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 warrant listening to and discussing and persevering with. Because I think there are pleasures in this album that you might not hear without really committing to it to 10, 15, 20 I, listens. I couldn't this agree is, more. Yeah, yeah, this is radio-friendly music, right? This yeah. is, and if this came on the radio, I wouldn't switch over. I would be pleased. Yeah, they're kind of, they do manage to kind of straddle that interesting thing. Like I said, mm. slightly complex, according to Pitchfork, and I think that's true. You know, I think there's a lot of thought gone into it. Uh, and generally, something to be said for it. we got to go. Soundingboard69 on Twitter, soundingboard1969 at gmx.com on email if you want to get hold of us that way. And we've also got a presence on Facebook. We'll be back relatively soon, I think, and David will be back as well. And episode 20 of the podcast, we shall be looking back on the life and career of Elvis Presley 40 years after his sad demise. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time.